Today's podcast is an episode of the Coronavirus Crisis Update plus The Impossible State. We hope you enjoy both. You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Victor and I are joined today on The Impossible State by our dear friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Morrison, the head of CSIS's Global Health Program. Steve, welcome to The Impossible State. Victor, we've got a lot to talk about. I mean, as you predicted in your op-ed piece for The Washington Post back in March, North Korea is having a major COVID blowout. On Wednesday this week, North Korea said 233,000 more people had reported fever symptoms than the previous day, and six had died, bringing the total number of fever victims that they're copping to to be over 1.7 million people since Pyongyang first admitted they were having an Omicron outbreak last week. It's pretty astounding numbers, Andrew. I'm sure Steve could speak to that as well. I mean, even if their reporting is delayed, and even if we gave them two weeks or three weeks, that's really going from a standing start to well over 1.7 million within a short period of time. And we don't even know the extent of it because they can only report people with fevers because they don't really have any testing capacity. So unfortunately, this is something that Steve and I and Katrin Fraser had written about in March that we were quite concerned about this. And you know, uh, quite unfortunately, the, the both the CSIS report and the Washington Post op-ed ended up being prophetic because uh, we're living sort of this reality right now in, in, in North Korea. So, Steve, I want to turn to you. One of the biggest problems here is that North Korea is a highly unvaccinated population. So what does that say for the trajectory of this Omicron outbreak? Well, let's just remind everyone of what North Korea does not have in place, okay? I mean, when this pandemic started, when this virus was first discovered, and there were no mitigation measures in place. The general rule of thumb was that fatalities would be one to 3% if nothing was done. Now, the virus has evolved, it's become faster. It may be slightly less lethal than the original one, but let's look at what's not in place in North Korea because this is about as extreme a blank slate as you can find, right? You have a population of 26 million with no immune protection, from vaccines or from prior infection. Extraordinary. You have no vaccine program. You have no antiviral program. In terms of basic therapeutics, protective gear, oxygen, ICU beds, testing capacity, surveillance, very, very, very little that you can point to. You have pre-COVID, you had malnutrition running at 42%. Then you've had two years of lockdown, two years plus of complete isolation in which the economies deteriorated, lost something like, Victor would know, 20 or 25 percent of the GDP. Poverty has escalated so that malnutrition and poverty have worsened significantly from an already very, very perilous situation. Health infrastructure, weak, fragmented, medical supply chains interrupted now for two and a half years. And so... 
if you drop this virus in, which is inevitable, inevitable that this was going to happen, it's going to race through. They're going to try mass lockdowns and that will slow things down. But when you're locking down and you really don't have a good system of quarantining, testing, isolation, what are you doing but just forcing people together? You're not doing anything to get control over, over rampant transmission. In fact, you're probably making it worse. And the other thing I want to say about the lockdown, there's now a national lockdown in place put in force at the end of last week. If you don't have food to provide people, if you don't have water, if you don't have uh, an ability to tell people, here's how you get out from underneath this, you, if you can, then you're creating a catastrophe politically and human catastrophe on top of this. I don't think it's inconceivable that we're going to see a couple of hundred thousand deaths. I don't think it's inconceivable we're going to see half a million to a million of extreme cases. I don't think it's inconceivable that we'll see a couple hundred thousand long COVID cases. This has grave consequences potentially for what happens to North Korea. And it's, it's, it begs the question, what can the external world do? The one of the things that is also not present is any serious operational WHO or UNICEF presence inside the country that you could activate rapidly. That's missing. So this is primed for a, just a disastrous outcome. This population was already vulnerable, but then when you add on top of that the two and a half year lockdown that's taken place in the country that has uh, made it impossible for them to continue to upkeep stocks of regular medicine, as Steve said, the food uh, situation has gotten worse. You know, the audience has to remember when they lock everybody down, it's like it's not like in North Korea, you can call Uber Eats right and get something delivered to you they you know they need to travel to get food they need to go to the center of town or something and get food so the the impact is 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 quite severe the other thing is when they're just quarantining everybody you're talking about because they have no ability to distinguish between fever flu and covid they're essentially putting together people in groups where those who don't have COVID are guaranteed to get it. So whoever they quarantine, and if we ever have accurate numbers, you can assume that population is gonna be entirely infected with COVID because uh, they have no way of distinguishing who does and who doesn't have COVID. Victor, the North Koreans have reached out to China, but they haven't reached out to South Korea. What, what does this say to you? You know, North Korea in the past has rejected uh, offers by COVAX for vaccines, including the Chinese vaccine and the Russian vaccine. Their appeal to China now is interesting, and I think given that history is only reflective of how desperate they are in terms of their situation. But no matter how desperate they are, they're still not willing to lose face and ask the South Korean, especially a new South Korean government, for help a new South Korean government that just was inaugurated May 10th and is avowedly, you know, tougher on North Korea than the previous five years of the progressive government. The Yun government, the new government of South Korea, on more than one occasion, President Yun himself has said unconditionally that he's willing to provide everything that they need, vaccines, medical equipment, cold chain storage, test kits, antivirals, although South Korea doesn't have a lot of antivirals, whatever they need. And the response from North Korea thus far has been has been silence. How long that will last is not clear, but clearly there's 
going to be with each day more and more pressure on the North Korean leadership to find an exit strategy because right now they don't have one. Steve? I just want to add to, to the excellent remarks that Victor just made. I mean, Kim Jong-un faces a decision, right? He can stay closed and continue this mimicking the Chinese without the tools to make even the Chinese type of approach work. Uh, he can stay closed and let the virus tear through the population, weather the storm, take the fatalities and the extreme illness and the breakage of the weak health system being overwhelmed. And at the end of the day, there'll be some acquired immunity protection uh, within the population that gets infected. That's one choice. A second choice is to decide through some form of reopening. And he's at that decision point right now. And I would posit, and this draws on some of Victor's own arguments, I'm plagiarizing here a bit, I think that this is truly destabilizing what he faces in terms of his own survival and leadership, and that deploying the military as the lead element in the response, very interesting. Going on national television wearing a mask, very interesting. Sending some flares out, sending a couple planes to China. There's a, some sense of movement there. You see the statements coming from Dr. Tedros at WHO, which suggests that, you know, they're continuing to try to engage to see what's possible. I agree with Victor that so far there's no evidence that they're changing course, but this is a very, very fraught moment for this government and, and his own language in describing the crisis last Thursday, Friday, and into the weekend revealed the degree to which he sees it as such a perilous moment. The only other time that North Korea has reached out like this for international support was the famine in the mid-1990s, where the World Food Program you know, mobilized many countries. The United States and Japan were among the biggest donors of uh, food assistance to North Korea in the mid-1990s. When they lost 10% of their population, it's estimated over 2.2 million people died because of the famine. So we're on the brink of something potentially like that now, a decision point like that now. Uh, but it's a different leadership, right? Kim Jong-il is very different from Kim Jong-un. And of course, this is all happening at the same time that they are firing off missiles literally every week, ballistic missiles every week. And so it's a very different leadership. This is Kim Jong-un's worst possible nightmare in the sense that if we look at the way that they have locked down anytime there's been an outbreak of anything, MERS in 2015, SARS, even Ebola in West Africa, the country completely locked their borders because this is what they were so afraid of, a virus seeping into the country that they wouldn't be able to control. How did it get into the country? I have my theories. You know, I think part of it could, it could have been smuggling from China because, again, with the border lockdown, it's very difficult for them to have, you know, trade is down like 80% with China. It could be these quarantine facilities that they created for storage up near the border with China. And, and you know, maybe the protocols there were not that good and people got infected. Or it could have happened at one of these big rallies. You know, April is a big month for a lot of North Korean festivities. And, you know, they could have had one of these big events. The, the military parade, for example, could have been like a big super spreader event for them. So there's a lot there to chew on for the North Korean leadership and figure out what their next move is. Can I just pose one question? You know, when, a, when the Taliban came to power mid-August last year, accounts were frozen. You had an ongoing health program there that was in crisis. 
WHO and UNICEF stepped forward and played played the front role of trying to stabilize the situation and deal with the Taliban, deal with the donors on the backside, bring forward resources, and find a way forward. It seems to me that something like that is certainly possible and plausible. WHO and UNICEF have a record of working inside. They don't have much of a presence there now, but there's plenty of precedent for them doing things collaboratively with the ministry and, and with the various ministries in water, hepatitis, tuberculosis, HIV, other things. Is that a plausible angle potentially in which Kim Jong-un could find a way to min begin to mitigate, begin to reduce the suffering and pain while saving face? Yeah, well, anything's possible. It's certainly possible. I mean, if he wants to do it, only he makes a decision, so he could do it if he wants to. You know, like I said, in, in the mid-1990s, they made that decision. But I just, it's really just difficult to say right now what he's going to do. I mean, the, the, the other thing I, I was going to say on this is that even in a best-case scenario, let's say tomorrow Kim Jong-un said, okay, right, we need to help and we're willing to accept it. Still, the time it would take to get a system set up, because there's, like, as you know, there's nothing there, right? There's no infrastructure there whatsoever. And to get a, the, a, a population vaccinated, I'm sure they would just focus on the elites in Pyongyang first and not the rest of the rest of the country. I, I think you're right, Steve. I, I mean, I think that it's not clear what this means for the leadership going forward and the stability of the leadership going forward given what would be seen as a massive failure by the leader, right? They don't like to think that the leader fails, and they can come up with lots of stories why he fails. But this is affecting everyday people every single day, and um, it's going to be hard for them to come up with a narrative to explain how this was something that the leader saved the population from. I was going to say, Victor, you know, they— reportedly mobilized 3,000 military medical staff to distribute medicine um, in Pyongyang. They've been told to operate 24 hours a day, also reportedly more than 1.4 million officials, teachers and students in public health sectors were deployed. Is this nearly enough? No, it's like, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound crass, but it's like pissing on a forest fire. I mean, it's not really going to be the answer. And again, like it's, I mean, what are they going to provide at best? Like the elite will get Tylenol. It's performative art. There's nothing there that's of any substance or consequence. Guys, you know, President Biden is meeting in Seoul with the new Korean president. He then travels to Tokyo for the quad. W what does this mean for the United States? So this is the first meeting between the new South Korean president and President Biden. Uh, I think they start Friday and Saturday and a little bit of Sunday. So it's clearly an important meeting. North Korea will be a big topic of conversation. Up until last week, the primary topic of conversation are the, the missile threat from North Korea and the potential for a seventh nuclear test. Right, because I mean, this, is, this all has been happening amid a flurry of missile tests. Yeah, missile tests that are all designed to threaten the continental United States in terms of the technology that they're testing. So that was, you know, but but uh, that was going to be the main topic of conversation. But I, I can't imagine that they would not also be talking about the, the COVID situation in, in North Korea because, you know, that is 
It, of course, it's a it's a health situation for the North Korean people, but it also has national security implications and health security implications for the U.S. troops and, and, and South Koreans. So I imagine it'll be a big topic of conversation. It'll be interesting to see whether they do make a statement about COVID, the two leaders together, make a statement about being ready to support international efforts to help North Korea. That would That would certainly be something from a health security perspective that would be welcome and potentially you know, it would put truth to the lie that the United States has a hostile policy towards North Korea, that the United States and South Korea have hostile policies to North Korea, and that they would be willing to help the North Korean people. When President Yun talked about, the South Korean president talked about providing unconditional assistance to North Korea, he said he, they're providing assistance to the North Korean people, right? And that may be another reason why Kim Jong-un is not responding to the overtures and, uh, from South Korea, because it's essentially saying it would be admitting that the South Koreans can help the North Korean people in a way that Kim Jong-un cannot. It would be helpful, it seems to me, during this visit that there be an overt expression of compassion from both South Korea and the United States about the risk that innocent people face and the vulnerability of mass suffering. I mean, that just as a simple matter needs to be expressed, right? And the exceptionalism of this situation and the urgency of it. I think that reminding the world and North Korea that these issues can be treated and understood separately from the issue of sanctions and export controls and missiles, and that it's really the people that we're focusing on. We're not going to be putting assets into the control into the hands of the military to divert for their own purposes that's not going and the other is you know to appeal to whoever can help in this to come forward i mean china may have some options to be very helpful in this situation we've talked about the multilateral possibilities trying to test what's possible there that may be less offensive and more acceptable there may be a, a willingness to talk to philanthropies and faith-based organizations that have a long tradition there. It may be able to bring forward a number of other actors to talk about what's at stake and remind the regime that, that they are concerned and are stand ready to be helpful. You know, they've been cut out of the, the, the ladder, the NGOs and the faith-based organizations. They've been cut out by the, by the closure of the border, not for ideological purposes. They've been cut out because of the isolation strategy. Well, when the isolation strategy no longer matters because the virus is inside and running rampant, what's the point of having a closed border? Yeah, that's actually a good, Steve, that's actually, <laughs> that's actually a good point. Well, the lockdown doesn't really make a lot of sense now when they've got over 1.7 million people, as Andrew said, that have the fever. And, and right, that number is going to grow exponentially because they have no mitigation capacity whatsoever. I think, that, you know, the dilemma for the North Korean leadership is I think Biden and Yun will talk about this as helping the North Korean people, right? They will talk about it in terms of the people, not talk about it in terms of missiles or anything else, the people. And that's a dilemma for North Korea, right? For the North Korean leadership, because it's essentially, while it's an expression of compassion and empathy, from a North Korean leadership perspective, that is also uh, saying that you screwed up, right? That the regime has not been able to provide for the people. And, and I expect from a South Korean perspective, 
you know, the new president has talked about he, how he really does want to reemphasize human rights with North Korea, which is something that has not been talked about over the past five years with the progressive government in South Korea. So, uh, and as we talked about in our report, you know, should the North Korean leadership be willing to do it? Our expert group, when we came together, concluded that that it isn't that prohibitively expensive to get cold chain capacity into North Korea. As Steve said, they in the past have demonstrated an ability to do massive vaccine campaigns, right, in North Korea. As we said in our report, North Korea doesn't have an anti-vax culture among segments of its population as some other countries do. So, the, you, know, you know, it can be done. And there's plenty of vaccine, right? Steve, there's plenty of vaccine around to help them. So I think it's not a question of others being willing to help. I think everybody's being willing to help. It's a question of whether the North Korean leadership, and this is very much the problem with the North Korean leadership, whether they are willing to allow help for their people in ways that would cast doubt on the ability of the regime to provide for the people. And, you know, and that's the core dilemma for them. Well, we're going to have to wait and see what happens here, obviously. But, you know, I just want to ask you both again, do you think Kim Jong-un can survive this? You know, so it's a very good question. I mean, to me, like when I wrote The Impossible State, I said, you know, there were there were two possible ways in which the regime could face uh, instability uh, outside of war, right? One of them was uh, an effort to uh, completely pull back the market system in North Korea, which has just become um, a part of North Korea and a part of the North Korean people's ability to survive. The other would be a public health crisis, right, where uh, a virus would spread rampant, reveal all of the vulnerabilities uh, of the North Korean uh, public health system, of the population in terms of their, uh, their general health, the malnutrition in the country, of the generations of poor health care. You know, this would be the other scenario. So I just don't know right now. I mean, Steve can probably project better how fast this thing will grow, how many more numbers when you have a completely unprotected population. But this is, at least in my opinion, by far the biggest challenge that Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, has faced. I mean, he's just celebrated a little over 10 years in, in his position. And people were like, wow, it's amazing he survived this long. Well, this is about the biggest and core challenge to his capacity that, that one could imagine. Andrew, your question, you know, will he survive? Uh, who knows? I think it's fair to say, as we discussed earlier, this is a historic threat and it's potentially quite destabilizing. You know, what North Korea has become in the past week is a kind of real, real-time germ war exercise on a national basis, right? You know, people talk about doing germ war exercises uh, in order to flex our muscles and see where things don't work. Well, this is happening real time right now in North Korea. And it's a virus that we don't know exactly on the genomic typing. Is this B BA2? Is this BA2 12.1? Is this BA4.5? I don't think it is. But nonetheless, this is a virus that has a velocity several times higher than the ancestral original virus of December 31st, 2019. And it's going to outrace, it's going to outrace him for all the reasons that we talked about. Uh, he faces an enemy that is uh, not very beatable in this case. And the question is, can he absorb the shock within his population and survive? Or does he have enough wits and skill to figure out a way to open up 
and lower the suffering and not lose face with his whole population. Gentlemen, thank you very much for giving us all this insight uh, into something that very few people have insight into. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much, Andrew, for bringing us together. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Laurel Vibazon and managed by Claire Dannenbaum. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.